This is Working 2050. Working 2050 is a speculative oral history about workers of the future. We talk to people about what they do all day and how they feel about it. Then we write science fiction about what that future might look like in 2050. You know, how do you feel about a potential future where there's only four hours a day, four days a week of work available? And she said, great. (laughs) I'm H. When I started working on this project, one problem came up over and over again. It was distracting, not just for the people who listened to the first episode or for the people that I was interviewing, but for me. I felt like I couldn't really move forward on the project until we talked about it. Here's the problem. Often, when you ask people about the future, about what they think people will do all day and how they will feel about it, they don't have an answer. Not because they're clueless or unimaginative. They just don't think that we have a future, at least not one with humanity in it. They see the potential four-degree rise in temperature as such a seismic shift that they simply don't have any hope. It's hard to imagine a hopeful future when you don't have any hope. So. Here's the real question. Should we try to imagine hopeful futures anyway? By 2015, I'd made a lot of mistakes in community organizing, the type of work I did. Choices I had made, whether it was turning away from the pain of people directly impacted by what I was working on, or not speaking up about the decisions I didn't agree with. My choices had hurt people. I didn't see the point of changing, trying to grow. Once I had messed up enough, I stopped believing anything could change. I didn't believe in a hopeful future, not just for the world, but for me. And looking back, part of me wonders if I hoped there wouldn't be a future, because then my choices wouldn't matter. I wouldn't have to face them. But here's the thing. We might not know a lot about the future, and we might not have much faith in a hopeful one, but we do know that there's no such thing as no future at all. Because even when everything collapses, Other people, other worlds, have survived. They've survived genocide, environmental disasters, and far more. Even the most catastrophic scenarios for temperature rise still leave some people here, no matter how few. And if there's a future for someone, our choices still matter. So, who do you want to be on the way to the future? You know, you're looking at you know, potentially every human being on the planet being able to have food, education, healthcare, and housing um, with everybody on the planet only working four hours a day, four days a week. That's the, the projection. If, and there's a huge if, if uh, that abundant resource can be used in that kind of equitable egalitarian manner. And if it is not co-opted, because if it, you know, if it's co-opted by, you know, the extremes of um, wealth and poverty, then we're going to see the opposite of that. That was Kamal Sinclair, one of the founders of the Future Architects Guild. She spent years connecting people, collaborating, and imagining hopeful futures. Futures where humanity doesn't just survive, it flourishes. And I, I had a conversation with a when I was doing this research with um, this uh, Iroquois Mohawk woman from Canada, um, Skawanati, uh, and I. She runs the Indigenous Futures Program, an incredible group of people that are looking at seven generations forward in their speculative uh, work. 
um, and I asked, I asked her, I said, so, you know, how do you feel about a potential future where there's only four hours a day, four days a week of work available? And she said, great. <laughs> she was like, I come from a, a culture where work was never supposed to be the majority of your day. Work was supposed to be a part of your day. And then the rest of your day or your week or your month was supposed to be, you know, balanced between service to, you know, whatever the trade or the work, how you define work is with time in nature, time with family, time in community and time for creativity. She said, that's the balance. And she said, everybody just doing this kind of, you know, 20th century model of factory based, kill yourself for 10 hours a day, then come home and, and wait to, to get to retirement so you can actually enjoy your life. But that is not the kind of work that we understand as as the value system and so she she saw this as a liberating opportunity if we could identify it the future that kamal describes the many hopeful futures she is connected to are based in abundance they're fundamentally joyful um well it's it's so interesting because i was talking to my my sister who is like you know my like you know she was my idol when I was a little girl. She was, you know, older than me, and I looked up to her. She's, and she, you know, to this day, I just have so much respect and admiration for a life lived. Um, she's raised two children with her partner, and those two children are grown adults now. And I love them; they're so impressive to me. Um, so anyway, I, I'm just, I love the life that she made, and she invested a lot in her family and in time with her family. She would get up at four in the morning. And she wouldn't get home till seven thirty or eight for 20 years or 20 odd years. And I just, you know, I so admired her tenacity to be able to do that. I don't know if I could have done that. And then her weekends are completely her, her kids. And then they would take big vacations and spend time. I mean, her kids just came out amazing, but I asked her and she, when I were talking about this idea about the future of work with her and she, and I told her about the 79% of the workforce being outmoded. She goes, she kind of had a panic moment. She goes, Oh my God, what are people going to do? She had this like fear about, that's not fair to take, you know, she, she said one, she said something about, you know, you know, when there's not somebody that can check, yeah, sure. A robot could check out groceries and you don't need a checkout person, but that's somebody's job. That's somebody's, you know, livelihood. That's somebody's identity. Like, how are they, you know, what are we, you know, that's not fair to take that away from them, even if a robot can do it. And I said, you know, I understand that concern for sure. And I think that's why we need to have a process where people can contribute to, how they want to either accept, reject, or adjust, you know, to these technologies um, so that their own identity can be, that they have the, that some self-determination agency over how their own identity evolves or, or, or changes or doesn't. I said, but let's take you, for example. I said, you have spent, I can't even imagine how many hours over 20 years you've spent, you know, on a train or, you know, uh, and working, you know, on top of like a 40, 50 hour work week on, you know, this commute as well. Um, I said, if you were able to cut that time down by to a third, you know, what would you have done with the rest of your time? Would have you been in a freak out and idle and had no idea what you're going to do with your time? Or would you have started the arts youth group that you've been talking about for 20 years that you wanted to reestablish? And she goes, Oh heck yeah, I would start that arts youth group and I'd be running it. And we'd be having, and I was like, that's what I'm talking about. In our first episode, Rabbi Menachem said the world needs more people who are doing things that make them come alive. The futures Kamal describes are futures where more people are more alive, no matter what they do all day. Where people have time to do the things they love. Where people can heal from things that have made their lives difficult. 
where our choices, both now and then, matter. So after I talked with Kamal, I wrote a science fiction story set in that kind of future, in 2050. That's what you're about to hear now. Welcome to Working 2050, a centennial celebration of Stud Circle's oral history. This episode is called Game Show Host. Sam Okafer is the host and experience designer of Accept Your Death. When billionaires, former political leaders, or anyone who's done something messed up in the last 50 years, when they need to be redeemed, they go to Sam. Sam approaches everyone with grace and empathy. She doesn't condemn or forgive. Her show, Accept Your Death, is one of the highest-rated streams of the last five years. Here's a clip from last week's show. Welcome to Accept Your Death. I'm your host, Sam Okafer, and this is episode 3470. Today, we're talking with Jeff. For those who don't watch Accept Your Death, particularly our older listeners, here's how it works. Each episode is a 24-hour live stream of archival footage. It includes personal interviews, the occasional clay text scare, whatever they can come up with. And it recreates the life of a single contestant, not just for the audience, but for the contestant themselves. Sam is just the facilitator. But the hook, the real reason everybody watches, it's because all of the guests are people that most people think are irredeemable. Jeff, what else does our audience at home need to know about you? I mean, I, I think that's it. Um, I'm pretty uninteresting. Is that what you think? Oh, that's too bad. What about your time at Exxon in the 70s? Oh, um, didn't know you were going to ask about that. I, uh... Is that why you didn't tell anybody about what Exxon was doing to the planet? Why you didn't prevent the horrors? Oh, because you didn't think what you said mattered. I, I mean... Jeff, that's okay. That's... You don't have to answer right now. But while you think, I want to show you something that we made for the episode. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, it's a picture of your hometown. Miami. Oh. It's underwater now, right? <sighs> yeah. That's, that's right. This is what it would have looked like today if climate protections had been followed when you had the information about it in the 70s. It's beautiful, huh? I... I mean... <laughs> is it based on a gimmick? Absolutely. But it's a good gimmick. Sam doesn't just torment her guests to make them suffer. Though, that would be enough for me to watch. Instead, Sam brings out contestants' best selves by asking them to remember one simple fact. They are going to die. Even when the gimmicks keep escalating, Sam is really focused on giving her guests a choice. Even if it's not a very good choice. Jeff, I know this has been a rough 24 hours for you. It's okay to cry. No one here is judging you, at least not for anything you're doing right now. 
We showed you a time-lapse 3D model of your childhood home eroding underwater and a choreographed musical number about ways that your fear of failure allowed you to stay silent in the 80s and 90s. But it's time to forget about the past, Jeff, because the only thing that you can control right now is this moment here. So, are you ready to talk about your death? You know what? I am. I am. I'm ready. How are you feeling right now of everything you've seen? I mean, disgusted with myself. Horrified. I can't believe that I let this happen. That I was just so afraid that I didn't pay attention. Well, we know why it happened, Jeff. Remember the dance number on your attachment issues and loyalty to Exxon? God, God. So, Jeff, you and I both know that there is nothing you can do to change the past. We can't go back in time. But what I want to know, when you look at everything that's happened before that you regret, what do you want to do now? What's the one thing that if you died, and you are going to die, Jeff, if you died right now, take a look at your imagined decomposing skeleton on the screen here. What would you regret most? I guess I would regret never having apologized to anybody for any of it. I never apologized to my kids for the world they have to live in. I've been too afraid to own it. I'm too afraid to say that this is on me, that I'm responsible for this. And do you choose to be responsible for this? Are you going to own it after what you've seen today? It's worth saying that at this point, the 3D model is turning to dust. It's a nice detail. Yes. 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 I, I want to apologize. I want to own this. When we come back, we're going to help you do just that. Let's take a break, folks, and we'll be back after a brief PSA. Sam's focus on choice makes some episodes genuinely powerful. Well, and it makes the bad ones palatable. With the American Union justice system very much still under construction, with cooperative courts feeling more like a place where everyone is making it up, most of the real people who did really bad things during the horrors are now in places where they'll never be held accountable. They're in Amazon territory or their own private biomes, heavily defended with private security. So for a lot of people, especially those who know they'll never get justice otherwise, Sam's show could be truly healing. And just as importantly, it makes viewers at home ask the question, who do I want to be before I die? Because of this, because I'm a big fan of the show, um, I decided to ask Sam a few questions myself. And to my surprise, she answered. She was down. Hey, hey. Uh, hi. Hey. Uh, hello. Thank you for agreeing to talk to me. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. I feel like when I've interrogated so many people about their life story that if anybody asks me to do a real interview, then I have to do it. Well, I mean, thank you. Thank you. Um, okay, cool. So uh, walk me through a typical preparation for a show or uh, your typical day. Well, there is no typical day for any of us ever, you know? We're all fractals spiraling in infinite loops 
and every single second is infinitely different from the previous one, sending us spiraling down a path that is just impossible to replicate or recreate. Mm. I'm sorry, I'm just kidding. Uh, Usually in the morning, I meditate, I spend some time reflecting on who I am and how I got here, pray. I feel like my persona is somebody who's just constantly praying, self-flagellating, LSD all day, every day, you know? I'm too old for that. I don't pray. Unless a contestant cancels last minute. (laughs) But the show is big enough at this point that people don't really cancel, you know? I think they're afraid I'm going to put a picture of their decomposed corpse on the show Jumbotron and fly it around the Midwest. But we only did that for Jeff Bezos. You can't do that more than once. What about you? You pray? Do any mega meditation or anything like that? Oh, um, well, I mean, not really. Uh, not, no, I don't. I'm not really into that. Just curious. People are usually dying to tell me about their spiritual transformation. Oh, I met this guy who put fishing lures in his back. Kept sending me pictures, asking me if I wanted to have him on the show. If you're using that to transform your life and your choices, that's fantastic. But I don't want to put fish hooks in your back. (laughs) Yeah, that that makes sense. That makes total sense. Uh, uh, So, I mean, what do you do to relax besides fish hooks? Does your cooperative have any good games going right now? No, uh, no, I'm not in a cooperative. I'm kind of suspicious of them, to be honest. My mom got kicked out of hers right before I was born. She had an autoimmune disorder, and while she was pregnant, she couldn't work or pay any of the fees. So they kicked her out. Nice community. A lot of people who work on the show, they don't have cooperatives. Didn't grow up in them either. It's a little anti-cooperative cooperative, I think. When your mom got kicked out, did she try to join another cooperative? No, she died. Oh. Sorry, for someone who spends all day asking people hard questions, I I thought this would make me a little bit less nervous. Let me take a deep breath here. Uh, Can I ask you a question? It it makes me feel a little bit less stressed to ask questions. Uh, I mean, sure. Why are you making this? And why the retro audio-only deal? I don't know, really. (sighs) Yeah, I started making them a couple of years ago. I mean, I had a lot of nervous energy and a lot of free time, so... Mm. I hear that. (sighs) Yeah. Uh, My dad, I don't know, all the older people in my cooperative, they're just so busy. They're doing things. Uh, things that matter to them, or they're processing the things that already happened to them, um, which is also doing something. And uh, they're just doing so much all the time. Like social services, or inventing antibiotics, or budget and infrastructure, precision fermenting. You know, they're just, they're very busy. Yeah. People in cooperatives love to be busy. And, you know, my dad was always really big on know do whatever you want follow your passion have a purpose but it doesn't matter what it is but but do it have it 
follow it. Be it. But I don't want to do anything. I don't want to do anything. And I thought maybe it will help to see what other people do all day. I see. It's like, am I normal? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I guess so. Hmm. I see. I see. My mom was big on not doing. Not in a healing committee way, like a scheduled mindfulness project, but just just not doing things. She called it the right to be boring. Oh, the right to be boring. I like that. What, what do you think of that? The, the, the right to be boring. Uh, yeah, it's not real. My mom didn't do nothing. She had an autoimmune disorder. She couldn't make product for the cooperative, couldn't contribute, but she sure as hell wasn't doing nothing. When she was being tried, there was a lot of focus on her choice. Her choice to do nothing. In her hearing, they said she chose to lay in bed all day. Chose to skip important cooperative meetings. Chose to get pregnant when she knew she had this disease. She didn't choose any of that, except to have me. And that's a choice thousands of people every day make without losing their home or dying. The thing she actually chose was to be one of the most present people I'd ever seen. I'm sorry about your mom. That's really sad. Sure. Well, uh, why don't... Could you tell me about how you started the show? Um, I mean, one, one of the things that I was curious about is... Uh, why do you talk to people who everyone hates? They're the only ones that would go on my stream. <laughs> that was in the 30s. Media was totally busted. It was just me and the world's worst self-actualization AI. I didn't even own it. I borrowed it from a friend. He was a real streamer, an esports guy. Sometimes he would come over in the middle of the worst moment of a contestant's life and be like, Hey man, my next match starts in 10 minutes. Uh, give me back the Monica. <laughs> Talking to bad people about death only started because my first big influence guest was a guy convicted of helping build Amazon's firewall. And I kind of think he thought he was doing a self-actualization therapy course. I had no idea that we were going to stream it until he showed up that day. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I remember when that aired. That was wild. Uh, what, what changed for you after that interview? I went from a nobody with bad lighting to a somebody with something to offer. A lot of powerful people have done very bad things, and they feel really bad about it. <laughs> my budget, both my personal budget and the show's budget, quadrupled. I could buy my own damn Monica. So, do you do this? Do you talk to people who are bad and powerful and get them to tell their side of the story because that's what happened with your mom? Do you wish that your mom had gotten to tell her side of the story the way that your guests do? Uh, I, I mean, I hear what you're trying to say. It's a good hook. But... Most of the contestants have a lot more power than my mother did. They did horrible things. 
still that's true. They only get seen one way. And after the show, most of the time, they choose to try to be someone different. So, I mean, I, I do it for the people watching. For anyone who thinks that they can only be one type of way in the world. That they're already bad and it ain't gonna change. People make choices for themselves based on the things they see. So they forget the infinite things they can't see. So when people see you on the show, what do you think they choose to see? Well, what do you see right now? Someone trying to forgive themselves for being born? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, that's it. You didn't need to interview me at all. You know what's going on. Do you think about your mom when you do the show? I think about her every day. You know, I, I mean, it was in the news, you, you saw, but the Cooperative Exclusion Act, when it passed last year, you know, they're reviewing a lot of the cooperative ejection cases, the, especially in the 30s. And uh, the people who've been involved, they've been in the public eye again. They're getting... Uh, <laughs> oh, you're not crafty. I know where you're going. And damn, that would be some authentic content, wouldn't it? Me making the people who kicked my mom out of their cooperative accept their death. Do you think you'd forgive them? If they were on the show? Is that what you would want? It's not. That part, that choice, it's not for me. At least not for me at work. I want to heal in private. Well, good luck with everybody's <laughs> infinite faces and the fish hooks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wait, um, this feels obvious. Should have asked it. Have you accepted your death? No way. No. I'm gonna live, I'm gonna, I'm gonna live forever, baby. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. I'm kidding. But no. No, I haven't. It's a work in progress every second, but I keep trying. Welcome, Welcome back to 2021. I haven't accepted my death. Whether it ends up being from climate change or something far more mundane. Whether it's tomorrow or long after 2050. I'm still working on it. And I know that no matter when it happens, the choices that I make today, right now, still matter. I hope that your day-to-day, -day, whatever it looks like, helps you grow towards a hopeful future. This episode was written and directed by me, H. Kepclote. Sound was edited and designed by Katie N. Sierra Das played Sam Okafer in 2050, and our 2020 interview was recorded with Kamal Sinclair of the Future Architects Guild. Thanks for listening.